Good morning. NATO sends 700 troops to quell violence in Kosovo. NATO welcomes Sweden, but will the Nordic countries become a zone of contention? Report from Kyiv under fire and the right to counsel and the refugees arriving on the Lower East Side. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for the week of June 2nd, 2023. NATO General Secretary Jen Stoltenberg announced on Thursday 700 more troops are being sent to Kosovo after clashes left 30 soldiers wounded. K4, the NATO forces, will take all necessary actions to maintain a safe and secure environment for all citizens in Kosovo. And we will continue to act impartially uh, in line with our United Nations mandate. We have decided uh, to deploy 700 more troops uh, from the Operational Reserve Force for Western Balkans and to put an additional battalion of reserve forces on higher readiness so they can also be deployed if needed. These are prudent steps to ensure that K4 has the forces and capabilities it needs to fulfill its mandate. Last week, Kosovo's police raided a Serb-dominated area in the north of the country, seizing government buildings. Neighboring Serbia began mobilizing its military and sternly warned Kosovo about further violence. There's fear of a new outbreak of the 1998 civil war that claimed 10,000 lives and left a million homeless. Kosovo is mainly populated by ethnic Albanians. It's been recognized by 100 countries, including the United States, Russia, China, and much of the European Union. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called for calm on Thursday. Our concerns about some of the recent actions that were, were taken, uh, we've uh, said that directly to uh, the leaders involved, including uh, Prime Minister Burton. And uh, we're looking for, uh, for both to act responsibly. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the situation in Kosovo was alarming and that it could provoke another conflict in the heart of Europe. Meanwhile, the other European conflict is grinding on in Ukraine. Russia launched a pre-dawn missile barrage at the Ukrainian capital last week, killing three people, including a nine-year-old and her mother, and damaging apartment buildings, schools, and a children's hospital. It was the highest toll from a single attack on Kyiv over the past month. Russia has kept up a steady barrage on the capital and other parts of the country in recent weeks as Kyiv readies what it says is a counteroffensive to push back Moscow's troops. We'll hear from a witness based in Kyiv later in the broadcast. Stoltenberg was in Oslo, Norway at a conference of foreign ministers of NATO member countries. He used a news conference to promote membership for formerly neutral Sweden in the Atlantic Alliance, a bid strongly supported by NATO's largest member, the United States. Sweden will become a member. All allies have invited them to join, and their security is already stronger as a result. I'm in close um, and constant contact with Turkish authorities to ensure that Sweden becomes a full member as soon as possible. This is important for Norway's security, it is important for the whole uh, Nordic and Baltic region, and it is important for NATO. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg Turkey has blocked Sweden's membership, angered by Sweden's longtime support for independence-minded Kurdish militants. Turkey does support membership for Finland, a country sharing a long border with Russia that's also seeking NATO membership. The co-founder of the Swedish-based Transnational Foundation for Peace and Future Research is Jan Oberg. He says two centuries of Swedish neutrality are coming to an end 
Oberg joins us from Malmo, Sweden. It has kept Sweden out of warfare for almost 200 years, and that will, NATO membership will not keep us out of war uh, for the next 200 years if we live that long. Uh, no, but I mean, long story short, it has always been a kind of um, moderate, uh, flexible neutrality, because you mentioned the Second World War. Everybody knows that the Germans were allowed to transport their equipment up to Narvik in, in, in Norway through, through, through Sweden. And uh, even during the period of Olaf Palma neutrality, it was always said that we know where we belong, economically, politically, culturally, etc. And uh, neutrality has meant not being allied, allied with anyone. And uh, of course, non-alignment and neutrality is not the same thing. But basically, it meant we are not going to join an alliance against anyone. And that, I think, is wisdom compared with the utter, utter stupidity that is now running the whole show. What is public opinion towards this move towards NATO? Public opinion has always been strongly against NATO membership, if you talk about the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 20s, etc., and very strongly against nuclear weapons. Sweden were contemplating uh, having nuclear weapons in the 50s and decided politically not to become a nuclear power like Yugoslavia and others who could do it, but decided not to. And there has never been a majority in Sweden. When the application for membership of NATO was sent, 47% of the Swedish people who were in favor, 27, if I remember correctly, were in doubt and didn't know what to think about it, or were skeptical, whatever. So there has never been a majority here. But of course, you saw, and now there's a majority for it after the membership, because the moment you have media that write only one story and there's only one narrative and Putin is going to, you know, swallow Sweden also, etc. And people who are not experts don't know better and don't see that this is, this is uh, propaganda. Then, of course, you can, you can switch people's opinion. Some of us who are experts and have spent 50 years in understanding these things are not so easily fooled. Whereas in Finland, over 70% were in favor of NATO membership when the application was sent. But I was appalled by the lack of balanced discussion pro et con in Sweden, which usually have had a very elaborate process for political decision making. That did not take place here. It was hurried. It was panicking. It was very propagandistic. There were two whole evening uh, broadcast debates where you had one or two uh, skeptical and 18, 20 different people in uniforms or whatever who were pro. It has nothing to do with a good discussion. And there is no analysis made in Sweden of the potential consequences of this pro con. Sweden geographically is very close to Russia. And in fact, there's an inland landlocked sea, basically, with only a small inlet between them. Uh, what would be the, the, in your opinion, the long-term, short-term and long-term impact of Sweden joining NATO? The impact will be less sovereignty in making decisions. Another one will be pre-positioning of military material or bases, whatever you'd call them, in Sweden at some point. It will also mean that there is, for the whole region, much less time to, let's say, react in case there is a situation of tension, because the parties will stand very close to each other. Finland will have bases also by the United States, uh, U.S. bases in Finland close to the Russian border. That means no time for negotiation, no time for taking it easy, no time for confidence building or dialogue. So the whole thing is much more confrontational rather than the Nordic area being what we used to call a Nordic balance, meaning 
Each of the Nordic countries had their own security political profile, so to speak, but they knew that they would take each other into account. Now, the sea that you talk about, the Baltic Sea, is now a NATO sea. So the whole thing, this expansion of NATO, which is the same thing the whole way down through Europe, there's 10 members who were members of the Warsaw Pact who are now NATO members. It is all a way of creeping up, I used to say jokingly, under the skirts of Mother Russia. And nobody would accept that if it was a Western power. If the United States was placed in Russia and Washington was Moscow, was in Moscow, <laughs> the U.S. would have stopped this long ago, as they did in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we have clear agreements in Europe where it's clearly stated no country should, after the end of the Cold War, take such steps that reduces the security of others. We have done nothing but simply humiliating Russia. And of course, they will, at some point, there will be a reaction. At some point, Russia is going to say, well, if you're part of NATO, then we're targeting your cities with nuclear weapons, like every other NATO nation. Oh, yeah. Well, that's another, of course, obvious result. If you're a member of NATO, the opposite party's missiles will be pointing to your country, which was not necessarily the case when you were neutral. That's why the weapons are there. They're not pointing at yourself. This whole thing means that there will be more U.S. dominance, of course, in Scandinavia than there has ever been. We know what that means. It also means these countries like Denmark the last 20 years has participated in U.S. wars uh, all over the world with F-16s or troops from being an occupying power in Iraq in 2003 to 2007. I'm quite positive that the Swedish and Finnish troops will soon be seen all over the world where the U.S. or France or somebody else is in war. That's what we never wanted in Scandinavia. Is that something the military wanted in uh, in Scandinavia? Are they getting what they want? Well, or is... Of course, if, if we talk about the, the multi-billion dollar investments that will now be made in Sweden and everybody will come up uh, to 2%, which is a stupid measure because... Military expenditures should not be decided by <laughs> whether your economy is growing or not. It should be decided by a serious analysis of what threatens you. But this whole thing means more money for the military, and why should they be against that? And let me give you an example. They are producing completely bizarre arguments of threats. The highest military person, the chief of command in Sweden uh, two weeks ago, said that one could not exclude that Russia would try to occupy southern Sweden. When you're saying that, you're a calm hysteric. And secondly, it's pure propaganda. Mr. Putin does not have anything with which he could at attack and keep a part of Sweden. You ask yourself, how many countries would you have to have conquered before you get to the southern part of Sweden? But if you don't know anything, people will say, oh my God, is that really so? Then I better accept it. That's how it works. This is not something that the general public has a great knowledge about. You can you can basically tell them anything and they'll trust it. Will Sweden now become a home to uh, American nuclear weapons? That I don't think. But I cannot know because, you know, the arrogant policy of the U.S. is when they go around the world with their nuclear submarines or big boats that if no country is asking, do you have nuclear weapons with you or not, because the answer is we neither confirm nor deny. That's a standard procedure. That's what they're supposed to say. But we cannot know that. We could know that that would not be the case for a neutral sovereign state. But as a NATO member, we cannot be 100% sure that that is so. I mean, nothing could prevent the Americans from running to Gothenburg or, or Stockholm and having nuclear weapons on board. The Swedish government is not going, like the Danish and the Norwegian, aren't going to ask, do you have that? Yes, we do. <laughs> oh, then you better leave. <laughs> That's not how it works, you know. So 
That's very sad, but that's what it is like. And all this, let me give you the framework for this. I don't know how many of your listeners are aware of these things. NATO's combined total 31 countries military expenditures are 12 times higher than Russia's. I said 12 times higher. And that means Russia is a military dwarf, whereas during the first Cold War, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and up to 90, you had 60 to 70% of the Warsaw Pact military expenditures of NATO. It was a relatively balanced system with the two uh, blocks against each other. Today, it's totally unbalanced. It's totally asymmetric. It's David and Goliath. You're hearing Mr. Stoltenberg say, well, 2% is no longer the ceiling. It's the floor. And Poland is planning for 4% of military. I mean, this is hysteria. This is beyond rational. Is the United States preparing one day, if not this war, but one day to invade and put an end to Russia once and for all? Well, that would be the end of the world. I'm not a fortune teller. I don't know. I think parties have been responsible so far since we had nuclear weapons, apart from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which Biden, by the way, did not feel any any uh, urge to apologize for when he was there recently. Everything can be thought of like that. And then, of course, if you if you thought of such a scenario, it would be nice for them to have Sweden and Finland as territories to operate from. I don't hope that anybody would uh, risk, not risk, but would definitely take steps to uh, annihilate uh, humanity. Crazy. The U.S. maybe wants to take advantage of Russia's uh, geographic infirmities, that it has uh, limited access to the ocean for its submarines, and just bottle it up. That's a great advantage from the Sweden-Finland membership. And you have Secretary of Defense Austin's declaration about a year ago that we are engaged in Ukraine to weaken Russia once and for all, so it can never do that again. And you and I know the thinking behind this is let's get rid of Russia as a problem, a security problem or a threat or whatever we think it is, so that we can gather all our resources against China. Ukraine and all that is not about Russia and Ukraine. It's a NATO-Russia conflict that is played out in Ukraine. And the West is cynically using Ukraine for weakening Russia with a long-term goal of getting rid of Russia as a problem so that you can invest all your resources in fighting China militarily, politically, economically. Where they're basically trying to reshuffle the deck of colonial holdings around the world. I don't think that what we are having here is colonial holdings. We are having demise of, in the long run, of the West after three, four hundred years of leadership, and particularly by the U.S. since 45. We are seeing what has happened throughout history. Empires go down. There is no empire that uh, Ottoman or British or whatever, Rome, there's no empire that lasts forever. And what we're seeing now is the United States is getting weaker and weaker, and the West is getting weaker because somebody else is getting stronger. The only way ahead, in my view, is to adapt to that, create a cooperative, multipolar world, see to it that you stop the Americans from being militarist and imperialist and think that they can dominate the world. That time is over. They could that 20, 30 years ago. They can't do it today. Jan Oberg is the co-founder of the Swedish-based Transnational Foundation for Peace and Future Research. He spoke with the news from Sweden. In related news from the front lines in the Ukraine war, Russia said on Thursday its military had repelled three attempts by what it calls pro-Ukrainian fighters across its border. Moscow says at least 30 Ukrainian fighters were killed. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is in Moldova. He's pressing Ukraine's case for NATO membership. In Kyiv, Ukraine's capital suffered under a blitz of drone and missile attacks over 17 nights in the last month. The city's pre-war population was 3.6 million. 
and the constant attacks are exposing a serious lack of bomb shelters. Some shelters are in subway stations, while others are decrepit and rarely available. Many Ukrainians head for inside rooms and sturdy bathrooms when they hear the nightly sirens. Kiev resident Maria Pisarenko joins the news from her hometown. She says living in Kiev has become surreal. Daily life in Kiev has been looking very strangely over the course of last month. Very different from what we have witnessed and lived during all the period of, since the start of full-scale invasion. During the day, people live almost as normal. So we have cafes working, terraces open, people go by their normal stuff. And every day for recent months, we have nightly shellings by Russians. Every day, approximately at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., Russians start, we have air, sirens going off and Russians start attacking with all possible ways. Normally, if I may say normally, because it almost uh, has become a part of daily life in Kyiv, uh, the uh, Russians have been attacking Kyiv with shahed and with missiles of different types. Last week, we had a day when 59 uh, shahed drones, which are Iranian-made uh, kamikaze drones, were fired by Russians at Kyiv, and almost all of them, except for two, were shot down by Ukrainian air defense. Let me explain you how you feel it as a Kyiv uh, citizen when at night, um, at around 3 a.m., you as a normal person would most likely be sleeping in your bed. Maybe you have a family and your children are sleeping. Then at 3 a.m. you have an air raid siren. You have to wake up to rush to either a corridor because you have two walls and two wall room is the way to go if you don't have a proper shelter in your house. In case of destruction of your house, these two walls may save your life. Or you can go to a bathroom, because bathroom also normally is a more stable construction. Or you should go to a shelter downstairs under your house or your neighboring houses. Everything is happening at night at 3 or 4 a.m. when normally you are asleep. During this period of time, Russians fire numerous dozens of Shahed drones. And you can clearly hear the sound of Shahed, which resembles motorbike driving in your street. And you, while listening to this sound, you think about, okay, so maybe this is the last day of my life. Maybe I have lived enough and now is the final moment of my life. But then you hear a lot of explosions, which are air defense working. Ukrainian air defense teams are incredibly efficient, and we have all different sorts of air defense, thanks to the partners, thanks to United States of America, thanks to European countries that have given us different types of weapon systems. And you just witness and hear the fireworks almost type of event happening behind your window when Ukrainian air defense forces are trying to shut down all these shaheds flying and you have like one wave, second wave, third wave. And this happening every single night over the course of uh, like this week and the last week. Uh, we had a small pause of one day and before that we had one week, uh, let's say, off. In one month of May, we had 20 days of nightly attacks by Russians. Everybody in Kyiv seems to be sleep-deprived because nobody can sleep during these air raid sirens. You either rush home shelters or you just try to stay in bed and pretend nothing is happening when your windows are like vibrating because of the air defense and head explosions. And this is the reality Kyiv is living through. This is what is happening every day. And everything would be bearable but for one thing. 
these shahids and these missiles, they fall onto uh, residential buildings. And Russians precisely target residential civilian infrastructure. As calls for an end to the conflict that's featured threats of nuclear weapons have grown, Pisarenko says Ukrainians are doubling down, opposed to peace of the country they don't trust. Of course we want this to end, but it uh, has to end not with some peace deal which will be very questionable and very weak and will be broken by Russia like next day after signing it. And we have, you know, eight years of experience trying to make a peace deal with Russia. We want this to end. But this has to end with Russia withdrawing its troops from Ukrainian territories and stopping all the attacks on civilian population. We do not launch Shahed drones on Moscow. We do not launch missiles on Moscow. We defend our territories and we want Russian occupiers to be out of our country. This is the main goal. Pisarenko says it was Russia that started the war, not the United States or NATO, by invading her country. They launched the attacks columns of tanks, equipment, missiles all over Ukraine. Nobody provoked and poked this bear. This bear just decided to attack. And we have to defend ourselves. All of this fear is about using nuclear weapons. If Ukraine decides to enter Crimea, which is now occupied by Russia, but still legitimate Ukrainian territory, all of these narratives are spread again by Russian propaganda in order to weak Western support to Ukraine. After everything the world has seen from Izum, from Bucha, all these mass graves, mass tortures of civilians, is this escalation? Is this escalated enough? Last week, a force of Ukrainians entered Russia near the city of Belgorod and engaged Russian troops. Earlier last month, a drone exploded over the Kremlin. After the Belgorod incursion, Photos showed a trail of American-supplied gear, including troop transports, an anti-tank gun, and some trucks. Pisarenko insists the allegations of U.S. weapons being used in Russia are just not true. Open source intelligence proves all of these pictures are staged and they have nothing to do with reality. And of course, we understand that for Russia, it's very comfortable and a good way for them to show that, hey, you see Ukraine is using American equipment on Russian soil, and it's not. Ukraine is not using American equipment on Russian soil. Ukraine is uh, defending its territories and is obeying all the international rules. This is important really to notice. And Russia fights with propaganda with all the possible ways. Pisarenko adds Ukraine follows the rules and does not use U.S. supplied equipment on cross-border missions and that the photos from Belgorod were faked. Ukraine has promised to use weapons only for its military advantage to defend the territories which are signed as Ukrainian in constitution in internationally recognized borders. Unfortunately, the, the reality is so that military targets sometimes are not only on the Ukrainian occupied by Russian territories. Sometimes they could be behind the borders of Russia. And we are speaking about legitimate military targets. And this is what rules and laws of war, all the international conventions on war, they do allow to do. Ukraine in any way does not target civilian population, does not do operations on Russian territory, does not use American equipment. Pisarenko acknowledges most of the drones and missiles have been shot down, but she admits the psychological toll on civilians is growing. It's not like only two people. It's two people, or like in the case of today, three people killed, three lives taken for nothing. Two young ladies and one five-year-old kid. 
and missiles uh, were fired over Children's Polyclinic Medical Center, one residential complex, residential area, and two schools have damage because of missile debris falling over. Right. And it's also one more thing, because even if our air defense system are shooting down shahed or missiles, maybe you've even came across this video on social media, these debris with explosives, they still have to fall on something. And they fall just on the road on the cars and they burn the cars. Or they still fall on residential buildings and they still cause damage and loss of lives. And we see it as an act of a uh, clear act of Russian terror towards Ukrainian society and Ukrainian people. For sure, we see how they are trying to exhaust Ukrainian air defense forces. Maria Pisarenko joins the news from Kiev, capital of Ukraine. According to a report by the Center of Civil Liberties, a Nobel Peace Prize winning human rights group, more than a quarter of Ukraine's bomb shelters can't be found, and most of those left have no toilets, many have no electricity. And in related news, Russian oil refineries near the Black Sea were hit by Ukrainian drones last week. The U.S. repeated that it opposes attacks inside Russia. Ukraine denies direct involvement in the strikes, although Ukrainian artillery battered a Russian town near the border. Russian President Vladimir Putin accused Ukraine of trying to scare Russia after drones hit several Moscow high-rises. The Ukraine war is shaping up to be the first where drones are fighting drones. A statement released last week by members of Code Pink, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, Veterans of Peace, and other anti-war groups, is calling for a moratorium on drone attacks. The call to end drone warfare is being issued in time for the International Summit for Peace in Ukraine in Vienna next week. Nick Motern is with the group Ban Killer Drones. He says there's nothing new about drone warfare. It's meant to kill. If you have drones that are being used around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and one... uh, lands in there and makes it impossible to control what goes on in the power plant, that would be one thing. Another thing could be the assassination of the leader of any country involved with this, including NATO countries. It's a weapon that can be used by a very small number of people who would have a sanction against that kind of behavior. It would be something to say, we're not doing this in the interest of of saving lives, it would change the whole framework of thinking about how to prosecute this war. And right now, it seems that there's very few limits that there are red lines getting crossed because of these drone attacks. The weapon that gives the politicians or whoever's in charge the sense that we can go to war and we can tell our people You don't have to go to war because we're sending machines to go to war on your behalf or on the behalf of whoever's benefiting from the war. Now, the wars historically have been generated by very few people who have some financial gain involved. What it does is actually make war more likely to be accepted by the public. There is this sense that you can conduct a war without having to send me or or any of my family into that war. Proxy wars like this one are also more possible than they used to be. Historically, wars have involved having to send masses of people to kill each other. If you have people thinking they can go to war by machine, what we're seeing is obviously civilians are still going to get killed. It's not going to be some new kind of war where nobody gets hurt.
soldiers don't get hurt, civilians don't get hurt. War is about killing people. At this conference with Code Pink, Veterans for Peace, German Drone Campaign, Fellowship for Reconciliation, International Fellowship for Reconciliation, there will be uh, four or five of us who will be meeting peace organizers from other countries, hoping that we can put together some kind of an international federation organization that will pursue achieving an international treaty to ban the use of weaponized drones altogether. What is the International Summit for Peace in Ukraine and the International Peace Bureau? The International Peace Bureau branches in in different places. They're much more well-known in Europe and other parts of the world than in in the United States. And what they're doing on June 10th and 11th is bringing together both in person and by Internet as many people as they can to support a statement and to lobby for negotiations to end this conflict, really stop the train pushing for more war including weapon shipments into that area to build up a public support for negotiations as opposed to continuing to pursue the war. A mass of people from a variety of countries to talk about how to get negotiations going and to take a stand for negotiations. Nick Motern is with the group Band Killer Drones. Meanwhile, Russia has reportedly purchased enough Iranian-made Shahed drones to launch drone attacks daily. Strikes on Ukraine have occurred almost every day for the past month. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Closer to home. Protesters at housing courts in Brooklyn and the Bronx on Wednesday morning disrupted proceedings in both locations as dozens rallied outside. The demonstration was organized by housing rights groups to demand New York City live up to its right to counsel law, the first law guaranteeing low-income tenants have a lawyer. Since the pandemic eviction moratorium was lifted in January 2022, 45,796 eviction cases have been brought in housing court, including 25,000 where the tenant wasn't represented. Randy Dillard is a tenant leader at Community Action for Safer Apartments in the Bronx. He spoke the news about the reasons tenants are angry. What we want to do is stop the courts from not allowing tenants to have legal representation. In 2013, we got together and we formed a coalition to pass a city law, which is the right to counsel. It was a three-year campaign. We won it in 2017. The mayor signed it into law. The law was working all the way up to the pandemic. 86 of, 86% of the tenants got to stay in their homes. After the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, and the moratorium was dropped and it opened it up, is they've been flooding the courts now with tenants, and tenants is not being legally represented by attorneys now. And we fought for this right, we won this right, and we don't think it's fair for them not to give tenants law yet. It's the law. They're just ignoring the law? Yes. They there when you don't give tenants the 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 legal representation. Yes, that's exactly what they're doing. You know, they they won't adjourn the cases until tenants get lawyers. 
You know what I'm saying? And that's what we're asking. We're asking a new judge that's coming in to issue an order to all the courts to adjourn these cases until tenants get attorneys. What is the message for the protest? To shine the light on what's going on in the court and that a law is being violated inside the court and that's not right to the tenants. When they go in there and they get evicted, right? They don't have a lawyer. What can you do? If if you don't have a law sooner or later, you're going to get evicted because most tenants that goes into the courts, they don't know how to navigate that system. You understand? Mm -hmm. I was a tenant years ago. I went to court. I was in court for two years. And if I didn't have a lawyer, I would be homeless today. But I had a lawyer and I won my case. And I didn't supposed to be there for non-payment because my landlord didn't fix the things that was in my apartment. You know, the city is saying thousands of migrants and refugees are coming to New York. They're filling up 50% of the hotels are filled with refugees. Uh, How can they be doing this? They admit they're facing a housing crisis right now. That's another reason why we did this action. Because before the immigrants came over here, we already had a homeless and housing problem. And now you're adding to the list by evicting tenants now, where are you going to put them at? If you don't got no place for the immigrants and the shelters are overloaded, where are you going to put them at? And it's a proven fact that the right to counsel works because before the pandemic, 86% of tenants got to stay in their homes. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you use the law to keep tenants in their home if you know it works. Where do things go from here? Well, we're hoping that the new chief judge will issue an order to adjourn cases until the tenants get attorneys. And do you expect to have a positive response? We're going to have to keep doing these actions all over the city until the law is being implemented in the right way. Right. Randy Dillard is a tenant leader at Community Action for Safer Apartments in the Bronx. New York City has been overwhelmed by thousands of migrants coming to the United States as refugees from Latin America and the Caribbean cross the U.S. southern border to be then shipped north on buses by conservative border state governors. The city is required by a 1981 court order to find shelter for anyone who needs a place within a few hours. Mayor Eric Adams says the requirement is onerous as thousands of unexpected visitors have streamed off of buses looking for shelter and work in New York. Numbers are really alarming when you look at it. Uh, But the problem here is uh, on several levels. Number one, uh, we have to be honest, uh, the Republican Party, uh, they have blocked real comprehensive immigration reform. This is not sustainable. This needs to be addressed. But in the short time, we need to allow those who come to the country to be able to work. If we could allow them to work, it would take the pressure and responsibility off of the local cities. Uh, We spent uh, over a billion dollars and we're looking to spend over four billion dollars in the upcoming year. 
this is not sustain sustainable for us, and we believe it's, it's not right for the people of, people of this city. FEMA allocated out of the $350 million, only $30 million went to New York City. So we receive the large sum of migrants in our city, but we're not getting the funding to match. The plan on our bordering states is simply use the money from FEMA to bus migrants to New York City. That is just not a workable solution. About half a dozen sites have been set up by the city called respite centers to handle the overflow from larger sites like one in Red Hook, Brooklyn. One of the respite centers is in a former Catholic school building called St. Bridget's on Avenue B and 7th Street in the East Village. Outside, volunteers provided free clothes to the migrants. The former Speaker of the New York City Council, Christine Quinn, is CEO of WIN, an organization managing shelters for the unhoused throughout the city. Quinn says she's sympathetic to the problems Mayor Adams is facing, but he's got the solution all wrong. What the city is doing and now at their second or third go-round to erode the right to shelter, which we've had since 1981, is a terrible move. One of the things that the city asked for was to be able to allow people to sleep overnight in the offices on the floor, to allow children and their parents to sleep in congregate settings while they waited to be given shelter and to be given room. Neither of those things or the other things the administration has asked for, none of them speak to who we are as a city. Yeah, there's a court decree and there were judges' rulings, but that's not what drives the right to shelter. What drives the right to shelter is the soul of New York City, a place that has tremendous empathy and embraces new New Yorkers on a daily and regular basis. Now, we are in an extreme situation here. All of that is granted, and I am sympathetic to the administration. But they have simply not used every tool in their tool book. And they shouldn't be moving towards these really draconian steps, given they have more things they can do. What are those things, do you think? They should support the elimination of the 90-day rule. Right now... Uh, you have to be in shelter 90 days before you can apply for housing. This is a vestige of the Giuliani administration when punitive policies were put in place just to hurt homeless people. A third of all of Wynn's clients right now can't apply for housing because of the 90-day rule. The council has passed a bill eliminating it. The mayor should sign it, not veto it. This will get people out of shelter quicker. Once they're out of shelter more quickly, we will have more rooms and space to move asylum seekers into shelter. Two, the mayor and the governor should make the city's housing voucher available to people who are not documented. That would help them get out of shelter more quickly and get into permanent housing. The mayor is right that the federal government should expedite working papers, but you want that to go hand in hand with the 90-day rule and opening up the vouchers to undocumented so people have a place to live, particularly when they start to work. He harangues on that point uh, repeatedly. If we had the right to give folks jobs, then this would help the situation. There is no question. There are folks coming in with skills who could do stuff, who could get Absolutely. Absolutely. What else the mayor could do 
is fund homeless service providers to implement an employment program where they documented what all the jobs are of those who have come in in this wave and then seek out employers in those sectors to find what openings they have. So there's 66,000 people. Not all of them are adult. Not all of them are work eligible. You could do that kind of hand-on-hand a grassroots in the weeds work and get people not just working, but working to their highest order. The other thing that needs to happen is we're calling all these folks asylum seekers, which many of them are, most of them are. You have to go through a lengthy legal process and you only have a year to do it. We are coming up on a year. The city needs to use its vast bully pulpit organize the white shoe law firms in the city to do clinics where they give free legal assessment and then free legal representation so people can get asylum or U visa. Because once the year w- runs out, they are out of luck. 50% of the hotels now are filled with migrants. People who have come here fleeing oppression, violence, sex trafficking, the exact things that happen in countries because they are not democracies. They are not protected. We had this interview months ago about this very issue. They were kicking people last summer out of hotels and, and people wanted them out of hotels. Now we're putting them back into hotels. Didn't they see this coming? I mean, back a year ago, we were tell- you were telling them this. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, look, you couldn't have seen the wave of asylum seekers coming. We all know that. And we have to accept that. But we've been saying since the Duazio administration that we do not have enough shelter beds and that we need those shelter beds so we can then transition people into permanent housing because they need to have services to do that. And these, shelter, these hotels, excuse me, are just welfare hotels with no services and basically three hots and a cot. That's not going to get somebody stabilized. That's not going to get somebody out of the system. So part of this they should have seen coming. Christine Quinn is CEO of WIN, an organization managing shelters for the unhoused throughout the city. And finally, a heads up, next week the news will be covering the battle between activists in the city of Atlanta over a planned police training site nicknamed Cop City by protesters. Over 40 people involved in the protests are facing state domestic terrorism charges, and one protester, known as Tortuguita, was killed by police in a murky incident. The young activist was shot more than 59 times. Later this month, a lawsuit claiming Georgia is unfairly labeling protesters as terrorists using laws meant to go after organized crime, will be filed. You'll be hearing more on the story next week. And that's the news for the week of June 2nd, 2023. The news is available at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.